listening to the really useful podcast from makeuseof.com. This is the tech podcast for technophobes. My name is Christian Corley and I've got news, tips and tricks for you to help you make the best of your technology. Welcome to the show. I'm hosting solo again this week, but tips and tricks time later on will feature Gavin Phillips and Ben Stegner. Before that, we've got a bit of news. Quite a bit of news, I suppose, because it's uh, it's a few things about the same topic. Elon Musk, he's a bit of a lad, isn't he? Over the past uh, 10 to 15 days, he has bought a 9.2% stake of Twitter declared he wasn't joining the Twitter board, asked if Twitter is quote-unquote dying, and then launched a takeover bid for the entire platform. <laughs> You've got to admire Schutzbach, after all. The most recent of these events is the bid for the entire social media platform. And there's no denying that uh, Elon Musk can afford it. But the question is, will the shareholders agree? Well, he's offering 50% more than each share is worth. And the shares went up when he bought his 9% stake. The BBC has reported that in a surprise announcement, Mr. Musk said he would pay $54.2 a share for Twitter, valuing it at about $40 billion. He's already the biggest single shareholder after building up a large stake in it. And he says that if his offer is not accepted, then he would need to reconsider his position as a shareholder. Now, the board of directors seem to be edging towards rejecting the bid. But the shareholders on the company, not the board of directors, tweets Elon Musk. And, you know, there's plenty of evidence in favour of that. It's a fact. <laughs> Now, obviously, uh, in advance of a takeover, there is the planned uh, due diligence taking place and looking at the accounts for the company and all that sort of thing taking place going forwards uh, for Musk to successfully purchase Twitter. The big question is, of course, would it make any difference to Twitter? A lot of people are scared for some reason and concerned. That's an okay opinion uh, an okay feeling to have i guess that twitter would change uh, too much free speech seems to upset a lot of people it seems and certainly there should be rules on social networking uh, rules of conduct people behaving in the correct manner however one look at twitter shows that it is an absolute mess of bizarre sexual material extremist right wing extremist left wing extremist religious all sorts of insane views. It's a huge melting, uh, melting pot, uh, but unfortunately nothing's melting. Things just seem to be simmering and perhaps burning on the edges. Whether Elon Musk's purchase will make any difference to that is, uh, well, it remains to be seen, but it seems unlikely. Still, we might get an edit button after all. The rest of this week's really useful podcast features discussions between myself and Ben Stegner and myself and Gavin Phillips 
we tackle a number of topics. So over the next few minutes, you can hear us discussing how to make a Nintendo Switch dockless, that is connected to a TV without the dock, a discussion about mini PCs, how to improve PC airflow, and some email etiquette tips. Okay, you can connect a Nintendo Switch to a TV without the dock. I um, no, I, I looked into this uh, some months ago, and I've recently updated the article. It's amazing how many people actually want to connect their Nintendo Switch to the TV without having the dock. And I guess it's for people that tend to the, taking their Nintendo Switch around to a friend's house or on holiday or whatever, and not wanting to take the dock with them, because obviously that would be stupid. Mm-hmm. All you need to do this is a device it's a a usb c to hdmi adapter and it is will, that it yeah you can use a stand as well if you need a stand but yeah all you need is a usb c to hdmi adapter and there are a couple of them that you can use and what it should have is a usb c import a standard hdmi output an optional usb3 port if you wanted for extra storage or whatever and a usb c connector uh, there's a couple the, the links to the suggested tools uh, adapters are in the show notes um so yeah it's it i've got one i used it for taking the photos it works really well and you know combine that with uh, you know a carry case for your switch and get a little foldable stand for your switch and you know you can take it on holiday take it around your friend's house whatever because the kickstand on the original switch is obviously terrible which is why a stand is really useful um, so basically what you do, you disconnect the USB-C and HDMI cables from the back of the dock. Then you mount the switch on the stand or lay it on a flat surface near the TV. Then you connect the USB-C power cable and HDMI cable to the USB-C to HDMI adapter that you've bought online or from, from Amazon or whatever. Then you connect the adapter to the Nintendo Switch, select the correct channel on your TV and start playing games. It's that easy. You can do it in like two minutes. That's... Uh... It's really quite impressive, actually, isn't it? Because you look at the the Nintendo Switch dock, and it's it's a fairly large size piece of hardware, isn't it? I guess that's why you keep it right next to your TV. But yeah. knowing you could just take a few extra cables and a tiny little hub with you, you can plug it in wherever you go. That's, exactly. that's awesome. I mean, it's pretty much what it is. It's just it's that in a big piece of plastic that stands up that you can just drop your switch into and you know that's not to downplay the importance of the dock because it is a really useful piece of kit and it does let you just put your switch away and on charge and charge your controls when you can attach your controls to the switch so you know but it is a lot larger than it needs to be essentially mini pcs are getting more and more popular i remember the days when you would get a netbook which is essentially a mini laptop and they weren't particularly powerful but they were kind of flexible and useful in many ways i had a an epc for a time and I thought it was quite good, although the keyboard is way too small for me. Yeah, they feel like they're made for kids, almost, yeah. that they're just so tiny. Totally, totally. Um, over the past few years, since uh, 2011, 2012, the Raspberry Pi, a single board computer, has kind of, I think it's inspired the uh, increase in mini PCs. There's more and more small computers these days. They're called mini PCs. And they're um, like, I mean, you can use Raspberry Pi as a desktop computer, as I've proved on various occasions and make use of and elsewhere 
uh, computers are getting smaller. We've got a great guide to make use of on the 10 things about mini PCs you should consider before buying. Now, they are popular, they're affordable, they're easy to get hold of, but they're not necessarily what you're going to expect. For instance, you could get a mini PC and find that there's absolutely nothing in it beyond the motherboard and the processor. You'd need to buy RAM, you'd need to buy a hard drive, uh, you'd need to buy keyboard and mouse potentially as well. Um, so yeah, this is a bare boards kit, essentially, as opposed to a ready-to-go system that is ready to plug in and use when you get it home. So keep that in mind, and that they don't come with a keyboard, mouse, or monitor. Unlike a tower PC, a mini PC can't really be upgraded beyond potentially the hard drive or the RAM. You're probably not going to be able to upgrade the CPU. So keep that in mind as well. And you'll need to be using laptop RAM, not desktop RAM. Laptop RAM is a lot smaller than desktop PC RAM. Um, hard drives, you're probably looking at an M2 or a 2, let's uh, say uh, NVMe system. It's a stick uh, uh, storage system, pardon. Or a 2.5-inch solid-state drive or hard disk drive with a SATA connection. Both are fast. The M2 option is typically faster. They, As they come with a uh, processor built in, you'll be able to choose the architecture, whether it's an AMD motherboard and processor or an Intel processor with a motherboard, uh, you won't be able to switch between the two just like you can with a normal system. But it, you know, it, it, it does, it is worth taking into account which one you're going to go with. But at the same time, mini PCs aren't great for gaming. So you're probably not going to be doing much more than maybe a bit of retro gaming or a bit of very low spec Fortnite, maybe at a push. Don't expect to be able to game or do hard hardcore media uh, editing and processing on one of those systems. Often they have uh, an operating system pre-installed. It could be Windows if you're lucky. Or then again, it could be Linux if you're lucky. In fact, it could be Linux if you're really lucky. Um, <laughs> it, it depends which one you want to go for. But, uh, you know, when you're buying a mini PC, you should get the information that you need regarding the operating system. Some of them also can be mounted on the back of a monitor. Um, I mean, that's it really with mini PCs. They're kind of cool and they're kind of good. And the th none of them are really as good as a Mac Mini, though, I don't think. Um, th I think Mac Minis have got a bit of an advantage over mini PCs still. But, uh, I mean, if you're looking for something that's low cost and does the job of being a computer and doesn't take up too much space, they're ideal, aren't they? Yeah, I, I don't have too much experience with mini PCs. I might have come across them a little bit when I worked in IT, but... Um... Yeah, I think I think what you said is all right. They're a nice option if you don't want to have to worry too much about building your own computer. I guess um, if you don't need them, need them for anything crazy like high-end gaming, it's a pretty good way to just kind of get one, connect your peripherals to it, and go from there. Um, even portable, you know, if you travel a lot or something like that, or you work at multiple desks. Um, I think it kind of there's probably like a breaking point, you know, where it's a mini PC is worth it up to this point. And then if you need a more powerful machine, probably just better to spend the money and build your own computer or whatever. But yeah, I think they are handy and have to have, have their purpose for sure. Yeah. And the Mac mini is pretty much the cheapest way to get access to them. If you want, if you want access to the Mac ecosystem, um, you can't really get much cheaper than a Mac mini and you supply all your own stuff. So yeah. the reason I mentioned the Mac mini is because I know an illustrator, uh, in the UK and he's an illustrator and web designer. And I know a lot of his illustration, his early illustration work was done on a Mac Mini, and it's it's beautiful high resolution stuff. And he was doing it on a Mac using uh, Adobe Illustrator. And I mean, I'm not confident you would get the same level of performance from 
a Windows-based mini PC because the, the, the specs just not the same and it, they're not really geared to that same sort of activity. Yeah, I haven't actually. I'm gonna look at look this up. I haven't actually taken a look for a while at the uh, what a Mac Mini costs and what kind of specs it has. Let me see here. They are they they, are, they are, every time they update it, I kind of lose track. All right, let's see. So the ones on Apple's site now, they have the new M1 chip, eight core CPU, uh, 256 gigabytes of storage with eight gigs of memory is $700. So you're looking um, at $700 worth of mini PC potentially to get the same level of performance. Yeah, or the, the there's also a $900 one that has, looks like the only difference is 512 gigabytes of space. Um, yeah, that's my... Uh, I, See, like for me, like looking at this, I mean, I don't use a Mac uh, for my desktop, but like, I think I paid a thousand dollars to build my desktop, and it has four times as many USB ports as this, and I have four yeah. monitors connected. Like the idea of spending nine hundred dollars on a computer that has way less storage, fewer USB ports, and all that than mine is just not worth it for me. It doesn't but, compute. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Pun intended. Let's move on now to a useful hint, tip, trick sort of scenario. Whether you're building a PC or if you're just having some performance issues, airflow is a really important element of using your computer successfully. You want to make sure that your computer stays as cool as possible, basically. And with the correct airflow, you can enable that. And a cool computer means a computer that is performing well. Problems will generate heat, which will slow things down, which is why you need good airflow. Now you can start with this by uh, getting the right fans for your computer. There's a vast number of different types of cooling fans available from different brands, and you know, there are different cooling solutions as well. So this option alone requires a lot of research, and then you've got the uh, added effort of its setup and installation once you uh, do that so set aside a bit of time for fan uh, purchase and installation another thing that you'll need to do is ensure that the uh, fans are directing airflow in the right direction airflow should flow from the open side and move in the direction of the protective fan grill uh, it should flow from the front towards the back. It's very easy to get this wrong. It's very easy to put your fans on the wrong way around and have lots of air sucked in from both sides. And lots of air being sucked in means lots of dust being sucked in or having them both pushing out. And again, that's not ideal either because it's not drawing in cooler air. You should keep your PC in a ventilated area as well. I know a hell of a lot of people, and you probably do as well, and you might have even have done this. Um, leaving your computer on the floor, on a carpet, near a wall, where pets are um, yeah, common visitors. One. These can all lead to dirt, dust, hair getting into your computer, increasing the heat inside there by the reduction of airflow and you know causing performance problems. There are all other obstructions such as desks, the backs of desks, even cables within the PC or at the back of the PC where it might cover the grill. Using cable ties to keep cables out of the way is a useful option. You can set PC fan controls using speeds that can, uh, using uh, using controls that can be uh, mounted on the front or using software controls in 
your operating system. And you can also balance the air pressure in your computer with, you can either have negative or positive air pressure. The latter simply means that your gaming PC draws in more air than what is being blown out and vice versa. Now, it, this is a difficult balance to achieve. Go for the easy wins here, which is basically position of the cables and getting the airflow right and keeping the position of the computer uh, in a sort of generally ventilated area. Uh, changing your fans, installing controls for adjusting fan speed and worrying about the air pressure. They're kind of, they're more advanced things. And, you know, I mean, Ben, you're building a PC imminently. What, what is your solution for cooling? Yeah, so I'm actually going to be taking a much stronger cooling solution than my Ooh, current one has. Yeah. So my current case, I just use the stock Intel cooler, and then there's one fan on the back. So it's not super crazy. Okay. Um, this build, I have a much better third-party cooler that has like three lo three rows of heat sink. Wow. And then a better fan at the top. Okay. And I think there's two fans at the back and two at the front. So it's going to be a lot more air flowing through it. I'm going to be honest, you built that idea... up a bit, and I thought you were going to go for uh, liquid cooling the way you built it. I was just up. about to say, I think the idea of liquid cooling is cool, but I have never done it and I'm just worried I would screw it up, I guess. There is a lot of effort and preparation and worry associated with liquid cooling for the majority of people, I think. I think it's a sweet idea, and it just looks it's like, yeah, there's water on my computer. Yeah. Maybe next time. Yeah, I don't want to risk that. No. Emailing is uh, probably the first thing the majority of people do when they sit in front of a computer for the first time. Certainly those of us of the older generation where there was no internet, then there was an internet, one of the first things you would have done was email. I'll send an email and learn to email. And uh, over there, I mean, I, I hail from the sort of uh, the 1990s, you know, when the internet became big. I don't hail from the 1990s. I'm a little older than that. But, you know, I was... I yeah I had the motor skills to use a keyboard in the 1990s and sit in front of a computer and sure. uh, do things. And one of the first things that we did was learn how to send an email. And you know the it's not just about the mechanics; it's about the content of the email. That's a word I don't use very often. And uh, but I, I basically mean the the words and the message and the intonation and the the mood that is uh, communicated in the writing or and uh, composition of an email now the vibe as they would say the today, vibe right? yes now emails are um, we used to learn a thing called netiquette which kind of in some way in some senses kind of fallen away but in other senses is very much here with us but we don't really call it netiquette anymore because it's kind of a thing that most people understand as being reasonable behavior online which means that there are certain ways to behave when sending an email. So, for instance, if I'm communicating with a colleague or someone who's expecting an email from me or someone who I do business with, I never use the word or a phrase built around the word just. Because that reduces the importance of my message. I need to be better at doing this. Yeah. I've read this so many times <laughs> and I, I always do that. I... I, I like subconsciously use it in a way where it's like, I don't want to bother you or like, yeah. I'm just checking in. It's nothing like you have to do right this second. But yeah, I know that and I still do it occasionally. Yeah. So I never Probably use just. Occasionally. 
Um, but uh, there's, I mean, that's just one thing that you can do. Another thing that is uh, really important to know what to do in email is to apologize, especially if you're working in a kind of a distributed team around the world or even around the large building where it's not practical to get up and down to uh, have conversations with people and maybe you have to uh, pass on your apologies. Uh, so, Ben, how to apologize and say sorry in an email the professional way? How do we apologize professionally in an email? Well, I think when you apologize via an email, um, the three ingredients that I focus on are pretty much the same as an in-person apology. And I have to give credit because there's a sandwich shop um, here. It's in the US, I assume it's elsewhere, I'm not sure, called Jimmy John's. And there's all kinds of signs in the place that have different sayings on them and they're kind of funny. And one of them has a proper apologies, has three parts sign that kind of gave me the idea for this when I first wrote it. So I think I'd heard this before, but that sign had more wisdom than I was expecting. <laughs> so the three main ingredients for an apology in general is first, acknowledging that you did something wrong. Second is feeling remorse for your actions and being empathetic to understand how your actions hurt the other person. And then the third ingredient is restitution, which is making the situation right. So Quickly going through how you would typically do these in an email. Uh, first, you have to open the email. Um, so generally, an appropriate greeting, I would just do dear name. Um, if you're apologizing to a friend in an email for some reason, just their name or hi name is probably fine. Um, but the subject line is important too, right? Because the subject line is the first thing someone's going to see when they realize you've emailed them. And if you did something to where you made them upset, you want to make sure the subject line is clear. Um, so I would recommend something like, please accept my apologies. I am sincerely sorry. Something that shows that they're about to receive an apology from you, not that you're upset with them or anything like that. And then once you nail the intro, uh, start to, on the first ingredient. So acknowledge your mistake. So the key thing to do here is not blame other people. Don't deflect. Um, explain what your mistake was and that you understand that you screwed it up. Um, even if there were other factors, you know, if someone else was an issue, don't mention that. Just explain that you, you know, you screwed up and it was an issue. And then the second part is expressing remorse for what you did. So put yourself in the other person's shoes. Think about what you did, how that made them feel, or what consequences it had for them. So, you know, say you missed a project deadline and then your boss was embarrassed in front of the client or something. So in this part, make sure you say, I want to apologize that because I didn't do X, you felt Y or you had to deal with Y. And then the last part is making your mistake right. Um, so restituting the situation. Um, if there's something you can do you know, in the future, I will X to make sure it doesn't happen again. That's great. In some situations, you might be able to make up for the behavior. Um, you know, I'll work later to fix this so it gets out by the weekend, that kind of thing. Um, if you can't think of anything to do to make the situation right, just ask, what can I do to make it right? And see what they say. Um, and then closing the email, I would just say, thanks for reading. If there's anything you want to discuss farther, let me know and we'll work through it. That shows that you're open to dialogue. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. The only other thing, like Christian said, is to consider whether email is the right medium. Um, if you can't really meet up with the person, probably okay. Consider a phone call, maybe. Um, but if you can meet up, probably best to do that because an email might seem like you're kind of being cowardly. These are all very good tips. 
I can't remember any time where I, I mean, you know, obviously it must have happened, but I can't really recall a time when I felt that it, a, an email apology was appropriate. But uh, if I had, I would like to think that I, I would have been able to fulfill those criteria, though I really think it's particularly likely, but you never know. So uh, Yeah, it's tricky because a good apology, you don't want to say, like, I'm sorry you feel that way or deflect blame. Those are the two big things in apologies that make yeah. them sound insincere, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So you have to be careful with how you choose your words in email since they can't see your body language, obviously. And that brings us towards the close of this week's really useful podcast. Now, usually at this state of the show, uh, one of us, or both of us usually, has a recommendation to offer you. Unfortunately, I'm hosting solo this week, as you've already noticed. So, instead of a recommendation, why don't you browse through the show notes, click the things that you're interested in, and if you feel that we've helped you, please leave a review on uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcasting preferred platform is, or just share the podcast on Twitter or Facebook to uh, anyone you think would benefit from it. I'll be back with the really useful podcast next week, along with one of my co-hosts. Until then, it's goodbye. Goodbye.